Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. George Saunders is the author of nine books, including the novel Lincoln and the Bardo, which won the Man Booker Prize, and the brand new short story collection Liberation Day. On today's episode, George is in conversation with Matt Robard, host of the popular food culture show, The Taste Podcast. They discuss Chicago pizza, Santa Cruz coffee, lunch in Texas oil fields, and food of the future. It's a fun, wide-ranging discussion. You can also subscribe to The Taste Podcast right here on this very platform. Now enjoy Matt Robard in conversation with the author, George Saunders. I'm excited to talk to you. Liberation Day is is here. You're a collection of essays that is out. Uh, we will get to that. But I, I have to ask, just from the jump, you've said that drinking coffee is one of your only habits. <laughs> so I got to get, can we get down your coffee routine, particularly when you're writing? Yeah. I mean, one, incredibly low standards. So if it even <laughs> if somebody just says it's coffee and it isn't, that's good enough. Uh, no, you know what? I, I It's funny because what I do is now... Uh, as a person of a certain age, the night before, I take a lot of pleasure in making the pot already. You know, it's it's not anything special. It's just like <laughs> regular coffee. But there's something about about making it the night before and then going to sleep knowing that all I have to do is kind of stumble to it in the morning and hit the button. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, really, I don't, I'm not like a connoisseur at all. I, I mean, I, every so often I'll go, oh, this is really good. But uh, for me, it's kind of the, just the, the, the ritual of having the, the coffee. And then the other thing I notice is if I ever do something, like if I'm writing and I do something that I think is pretty good, I instantly reward myself by filling the cup the rest of the way up. You know, so it's yes. like this weird residual Catholic thing, I think, where, you know, <laughs> if I do something good, I, I'm not allowed to wallow in it, but I can go get a little bit of reward and then come back, you know. So. Do you, do you sometimes time the coffee? Like if you have like a moment you need, cause I, I'm as a writer, I do this myself. If you need to like really like pump yourself up for like a, a moment or a 30 minute window, do you ever just go and t- take that shot of espresso or get that coffee? Well, the weird thing is, man, at this point, I don't even feel it. I can have a cup of coffee right before uh-huh. bed. It doesn't, I think I've broken everything or broken something inside of myself. So uh, but symbolically, yeah, you know, like if the, yeah, it's almost like you don't want to try a hard thing when the cup is in like in the lower third and it's cold. So yeah, there's certain, there, it's really funny. I, when I was finishing the Lincoln and the Bardo, I got in this weird routine of, um, I had these big pretzels, these kind of like old fashioned pretzels and also graham crackers. And oh, so yeah. I'd have those over at the house. And when I was, um, yeah, when I was kind of getting ready to take a run at something, I'd go over there and load up on carbs, you know, and, and, uh. So it's not healthy. But. No, but it's it seems like a healthy snack. I have to say, not feeling coffee feels like a scene from, you know, a, a near future dystopic kind of scenario that you're, you know, quite quite famous and proficient at writing. Yeah. I must say. It just means you have to do a lot more of the really hard drugs to, you know, to get up. Like you have to- <laughs> Like six Hershey bars, for example. That yeah. yeah. I, I like the future where Hershey bars are like uh, like, like fentanyl, you know? Like yeah. that, that's, <laughs> no, that's not good. That, that we no, do. sorry. That's not good. To be clear, that's more, it's more like, like for me, it's more like Metamucil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you live in Santa Cruz or part-time and, and you're a fan of Cat and Cloud. I have to shout those guys out. Yeah, they're wonderful. It's a great, it's a great coffee and it's a great atmosphere. And it's not, it's maybe, uh, you know, 10 minutes from our house. 
That's cool. And those guys, they do a great podcast, and they're they're definitely like leaders of the Santa Cruz coffee scene. So it's so cool that you um, that you're there. So you're full time California, or, or most time California. Are you feeling? Is there a food category that you want to dive into more that you're, you're now that you're spending more time in California? You know, I uh, I mean, we're no. To be honest, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, we're we're kind of like I I've gotten down to where I'm almost like a monk. I just like like. A little bit of muesli in the morning and some yogurt in the afternoon. And, yeah. the, and there is a place actually right up the right the down the hill from us. There's a place called the Coralitos Market, mm-hmm. and they make their own sausage right on site. And anytime you drive through there, it just smells incredible. So that's one uh, kind of guilty pleasure. If I if I feel like I've earned it, I'll stop by there and have a big old uh, you know like a, a sausage, and they they kind of dress it Chicago style. So, and you, and you know, it's not, I'm sure it's not really good for you. I, I, I don't want to defame them, but, um, but it's, it's awesome, you know, and they, and they do everything right there in house and then super nice guys. I love it. And when you say the word sausage, I, you're, you've got, you're saying it in Chicago way. It reminds me of my father and my uncle. Like you've got this like way of saying it. So you, you know, that's so Chicago funny. Roots. I feel deficient. I don't feel like I say it correctly. Cause there was my dad, when we were kids, he owned, um, two franchise restaurants on the South side called Chicken Unlimited. Hmm. And we did a lot of caterings, which some of my most treasured, you know, memories of high school were working alongside my dad. But there was a couple of guys there who were somehow with the corporate franchise. I don't know what the deal was. But one of the guys was a real Chicago guy, kind of big, loved food, loved, hmm. you know, the counter on which the food had recently sat, loved the wrapper. I mean, he was such a such a fan. And he had a way of saying, uh, he would explain how to make something in this really wonderful way that I can't exactly do, but he'd say like, George, <laughs> you gotta take the sausage and then you put it on the count. No, not like that. Pick up the sausage again. You know, and everything he yeah. talked about, that, no, 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 where's the sauce? You gotta have <laughs> more sauce on it. So it's something about just listening to that guy made me hungry. And so he would kind of, he kind of taught us how to do these caterings. And I, I always remember that kind of like, the reverence, you know, like the love for it. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that uh, when Chicago food has, um, it's, it's, it's fans and there's this following, you know, for that we could talk about tavern pie. We could talk about obviously sausages or, or Italian beef. And I want to get your take. Like, is there an iconic Chicago food that you feel is maybe not known outside of Chicago or, or given love? I mean, I don't think White Castle would be any big surprise to anybody, but I remember as a kid just, unironically worshiping those little hamburgers, you know, like they were, mm-hmm. it was such a treat. And in our neighborhood, uh, it was, that was sort of a, a way for the grownups to announce that they were happy. We're going to get White Castle. And the other thing was, um, oh, what's the name of it? There's a pizza place, uh, a home run pizza. That's what mm. it was. It was kind of out of the way. And it was maybe a little bit, at that time, it seemed like kind of pricey or something, but oh my God, when a, when a grownup said, we're going for Homer and pizza. That meant something good had happened, you know, like some and, celebration. Yeah, and the kids would just huddle, like, "All right, they're happy. <laughs> Those big people are happy. That's awesome." You know, my dad had these restaurants, and so I cooked for him a while. And then when I got my license, my first real job was to be his delivery driver, <laughs> and uh, that was a for a future writer just the best because you know you were like you'd go into all, all over the sort of southwest side, and you'd be just briefly invited into somebody's house, you know, just in the foyer. And they kind of would forget that you were there because you were just a delivery kid. And uh, just to have that little, you know, like sometimes two minute 
immersion into somebody else's life as it was in progress, you know, and it was so um, exactly like a short story, you know, you come in quick and you get out quick and you go, well, that was weird. You know, I was delivering, beautiful. I used to deliver furniture, George, and I have to so agree with you when you're getting these little slices of life, when you enter someone, this stuff you find in people's houses, some did not be mentioned in the podcast. It's just, it's life. And it is, there are like little vignettes and short stories. It's interesting. Yeah. And there's something about the fact that they're not really factoring you in. So you're being overlooked, which isn't great, but yeah. but <laughs> it means you literally are like a fly in the wall. There was one guy, he used to invite me in and we'd have the same conversation every time. He'd say, uh, hey kid, are you married yet? I'm like, <laughs> I'm 15. Oh, and then he'd give me this huge um, kind of lecture on how marriage had ruined him. Oh my you know, goodness. All the great things he was gonna do, but no, no. And then, Every time his wife would walk in, the sweetest person, kind of smiling, oh, Jim, be quiet, you're boring him, you know. And uh, so that was weird because I'd never seen somebody so kind of cynical, you know, bitter. Uh, and then also the way that she would kind of like, it didn't seem to bother her. And then the weirdest thing was to come back next week and have exactly the same thing happen, you know. For a kid, I mean, I was kind of an idealistic um, dreamer kind of kid. And that really was... Uh, it stayed with me, you know. Yeah, did it st- like did it become make you be, be a little more cynical about the world and like relationships and love? I mean, if you got this like adult telling you a, a, a kid of fifteen that he hates his life because of marriage, it's really obviously left an impression on you. It should have, but it actually made me wonder about him, you know, because uh-huh. she was so nice and and she didn't yeah. seem so. I, it it definitely um, puzzled me, you know. But I didn't I didn't think oh note to self don't get married. I thought don't be that guy. You know, don't, if you ever get a chance, don't ever talk your marriage down and don't be, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> don't, don't it's good advice. It, yeah. it, keep it private. Uh, what was his order? Do you remember? What was he, what was he? No, I have no idea. Everybody <laughs> would just order like a big old bag of chicken. You know, that was kind yeah. of the standard. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of celebrations, I would like to know a couple things. Let's take us back a little bit. Okay. So George, when you, what, when you signed your first book deal, how did you celebrate with food and drink? I don't remember. I do remember uh, there was when I sold my first short story after yeah. a long, a long. Um, my wife and I took the check, which was probably sixty dollars or you know something really small, and there was a little steakhouse. We were living in Pittsburgh, New York, and there was a beautiful little steakhouse right on the Erie Canal mm. that had been kind of beyond our our grasp, you know. So we just took that check, and then probably spent you know that much again mm-hmm. and just treated ourselves, you know. And and the other thing that when when I got our story in the New Yorker for the first time, uh my wife made a big chicken dinner and she uh she'd gone around to like six or seven uh doctors offices and collected up their New Yorkers with their permission. <gasps> and she made this kind of beautiful banner of New Yorker cover that she <laughs> she hung over the table. So I came in from work, there was this beautiful feast and then that that banner and and uh Paul and I and our two girls kind of Oh, that's so, you're, this is like such a sweet memory. And, and the idea that she was going to doctor's offices and just soliciting them for the New Yorker covers. Yeah. I, just, I love it, that. It was so sweet. And it really meant, you know, I, I remember it, you know, because it's, fu- it's funny when you get a success like that. I'm not somebody who celebrates overtly. I feel I'm a little too Catholic. Like I think that's yeah. a jinx. But to have somebody else do it and to, and to kind of go, oh, that's just a nice, you know, nice way to mark this moment. It was beautiful. Take me back then to when you uh, when you won the Booker Award, the Booker Prize. Um, how did you celebrate then with food and drink? Well, I think uh, 
Well, first of all, they had a beautiful meal, which I was too nervous to eat. So that wasn't it. Uh, and I think if I remember it right, it was just late at night. Somebody from the book company was kind of guiding me back to the hotel and we, we found a fish and chips place. Oh, you know, I mean, it was, and that f- fish and chips was like nothing I'd ever tasted before. And that feeling of, you know, all the tension had receded, uh, and you have that beautiful good news to kind of buoy you up a little bit and then you just, you know, settle into the meal and, and, uh. Again, a kind of a sideways celebration, you know? It wasn't like dancing on the tables, but it was... Well, no. I mean, that, yeah. and that's like kind of literary awards. It seems like dancing on the tables might not be... It might, that might be more for like, you know, a James Beard Award, like a chef or something, but like a like a author winning a book. I feel like you need to have like a pint and like a quiet corner or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's You know, it's funny because those kind of things say... I've In the moment, there isn't... In my experience, not much will make it better or worse, but it's that feeling that of uh, having been honored, you know, and, and, and then being emboldened. That's the thing that I, yeah. I think about, like, okay, so now there's no excuse not to try the hardest things. Um, and then you take that with you in a kind of, you know, it's, it's forever, really. It's great advice. I, I, I want to go back to your, your days in Texas. You, you worked uh, as an oil prospector dr- uh, drilling in Texas. And I want to know, I mean, I'm sure this time was uh, memorable to you. I think you probably have written about it. Now, what were the lunch breaks like with these guys, with these, with these, these oil, these oil guys, these prospectors? Yeah. So we were out, this, this was a particularly hot summer. It was, it was like 106 for eight days in a row or something. And just, I mean, cattle were dying in the oil fields and, you know, and on these ranches. So I think the, um, we would just sit, we would, they wouldn't let us into the, <laughs> the air conditioned truck. So we would just sit, uh, sometimes on a tailgate or just in the, in the dirt and, uh, you know, you would have packed your own lunch the night before. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. What I really remember is water because you you weren't really um, at liberty to stop. We were, we were putting out these geophones in these long lines and you had to go really fast. Mm-hmm. So uh, when lunch came, that meant you could they had a big cooler on the back of the truck with ice in it. And so literally I remember guys <laughs> literally lying underneath it. And having somebody open it and, and pour and just it fall in their face. Yeah, yeah, I mean, water was never so good. And uh, so I don't remember what the meals were, except that I do remember this. My dad at that time had moved into pizza restaurants. So he had a, a restaurant in Amarillo called uh, the Chicago Pizza Works and Speakeasy Lounge. It was kind of a, a, a really great pizza restaurant themed around like 1930s crime. <laughs> so wow. my dad would kind like of- Like Capone style? Yeah, like, no, there yeah. was some, There was a, a sandwich, you know, all Chicago style sandwiches. One was called an Al Capone and one was called a Frank Nitti. And, and my dad would, um, when he was feeling, really feeling it, he would, he would have a fake uh, Thompson submachine gun <laughs> that he would, when he seated you, he would carry the gun. So the, so the big treat was he had a, a thing that he had uh, picked up from a friend of his in Chicago called a stuffed pizza. So you, you made a kind of standard Chicago, very, very thin crust pizza with all the ingredients. Then you put another uh, crust over the top of it and you kind of crimped it down like you would a pie. Right. And then, so that thing is probably two inches thick. You cook that for 10 minutes, take it out again, retop it, and then put it in again and do another 10 or 15. And it was like eating a I mean, it was sort of like a lasagna without noodles or something. And it was so good. So the, the big treat was um, sometimes I'd work there nights and then you'd grab a couple of the stick slices and throw them in your lunchbox for the next day. So you'd be out there in the oil field with the, 
the water and the pizza. That is going to keep you keep you rolling, though. Like this, like stuffed tavern pie, this like hybrid pie that I love that your father is serving in the Amarillo on the to the to the people of Amarillo. That's like a great story. It was a great hit. I mean, there, literally, there were lines around the block the first the first six or seven months because it was. Uh, I mean, Chicago pizza was something they didn't know, and this was a particular kind of a variety of it that um, that he picked up. So it was really fun, and to be a kid, you know, a college kid, come home and you know, see your dad's restaurant be a big hit. And as family, you're sort of minor celebrities because you're coming in out of the kitchen without asking permission. And did, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, did you, did you, did you read Larry McMurtry? Were you a McMurtry head? Uh, a little bit. I, not as much as I should be, you know, I love his work, but I, I, at that point, I think my yeah. vision of the West was more Kerouac, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, but McMurtry's a great writer. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the last picture show is is probably it's just a must. I feel like just for for scene setting of of, of certain Texas um yeah, milieu. Yeah. So, in 2005 you wrote a humorous essay for New York Times magazine Eat Memory, the absolutely no nothing diet. Okay, so this is I'm going to link to in the show notes. I, I this is some classic uh George Saunders work. Um did the, was a narrator inspired by a meal or a circumstance, or was this just pure fiction? No, you know, I um, at that time I was getting a lot of requests to do pieces about stuff that actually I didn't know anything about, you know. So I, and Ooh, yeah, nice no, challenge. it is. And so then, so food, I, you know, what's your favorite recipe? I don't. At that time, I didn't really cook much of anything, and so that was kind of my, um, I guess, my usual response is to kind of take the question and try to not answer it, you know, try, try to. Uh, do something a little yeah. zen with it. But uh, yeah, I, I think too, you know, for me, one of my my uh, abiding personality traits is I'm a real perfectionist. And I have, I guess, like a lot of people, this idea that if I just do it right, I can kind of rise above all pain and suffering and ambiguity and conflict, you know. So uh, whatever I've done in my life, I've always been kind of excessive about it. When I was um, a weightlifter when I was young, I was working out six hours a day and you know, I mean, writing certainly I'm obsessive about and anything else. So that piece was kind of just a thought about, okay, let's, if if we take this idea of dieting, you know, to its logical extreme and that feeling of like, every time you put something in your body, you're contaminating yourself. Well, you know, th- then we end up there. Yeah. It's like, what a thought experiment to like have a, a, a narrator and not eat anything and have that be the diet of nothing. And, and kind of you writing around this prompt. I mean, that you got about probably, I would imagine the editor was like, write something about diets or something like that. I would imagine. Or but you know, the other thing, I didn't, I never made this connection until just now, but somewhere around that time, either before or just after I went to Nepal and I uh, was on an assignment to cover this kid that they were calling Buddha boy. And he had supposedly run away from his monastery, disappeared, and they found him in the jungle uh, meditating against a tree. And when I went out there, supposedly he hadn't had any food or water for like seven months or something. So, you know, it was a great adventure. You, 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 t- you fly, you take a train, you, you drive, and you're in the middle of, the, of uh, this, you know, beautiful rainforest. And there's this kid and he's sitting out there. And in the time he'd been sitting there, his hair went from a buzz cut to shoulder length. And so Mm -hmm. the idea was kind of like figure out what the scam is. And then from being out there, it appeared that there wasn't a scam from what I could tell. You know, everybody around him was very reverent and his best friend was out out there. And he said, I don't. This wasn't a pure. No, no, it was. I mean, as far as I could tell, it was it was 
you know, that's kind of the, the takeaway from the pieces. I have no idea, but it's not a, it's not a grift. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I have questions about this. So when you were out in Nepal, uh, and you're communicating with Buddha boy, is this a conversation, um, that he is, is he leading you towards, um, like a conclusion or is he just like minding his own business? No, there's no conversation. He, he was actually oh. uh, uh, separated from – there were huge throngs coming out to see him. Uh, and so there were two barbed wire fences between you and him. So the, the gist of the story is I got this permission to spend one night out there with him. So maybe maybe 100 – I don't know, 200 feet away from him. And he's not moving. I mean we, our photographer was out there and he showed me these pictures. Uh taking over an eight-hour period, there's no motion detectable in this kid at all. So, so really, there was kind of a one-sided conversation, which was me, we are me with my mind, sitting over there going, what the hell's going on? You know, <laughs> how is he not eating? And why is nobody sneaking in there to feed him? And why is my mind so busy? And why is it that I'm sitting here for three minutes and I feel like standing up? And, which you know, is such a tenet of, like, new journalism. You know, Frank Sinatra has a cold kind of method, like being able to write around and write in your emotions. And do you, do you yeah. find that you go there sometimes with some of your more your nonfiction, your reported work? Yeah, and in this case, there was no choice because there really yeah. wasn't any input. It was just me and my feelings about him, you know. Yeah. Um, but then that ended up being kind of a beautiful way of thinking about monkey mind, you know. Because there I was sitting in the jungle and boy, my mind was, it didn't stop for a second, you know. Do you, you do immersive journalism. You've, you've spent a week on Skid Row in Los Angeles and, and, and you, you're involved, some would call it gonzo journalism. I'm not sure if I love that term, but it thinks it, it resonates with people. Now, let me ask you, have you pitched or been, been uh, you know, approached to do a food-related, uh, more of this exper- experiential journalism, embedded journalism? Um, no, I have not. I have not. Most, you know, most of these I pitch uh, to either to GQ and then to, to the New Yorker, uh, but I have not. So, so are you compelled? I mean, would you want to, you know, Bill Buford's Heat comes to mind, which is a great nonfiction work about spending time in the kitchen uh, in Italy. I mean, have you thought about focusing on food? I, I, you know, you, you said your diet is pretty monkish yourself now, so maybe food isn't that important. But I, I wonder if you think of it as a rich topic. Well, you know what's, what is rich to me right now is um, – Kind of like this. Okay, so I'm 63 years old, and I've been in a mad dash uh, my whole life to pretty much do one thing, which was to, you know, try to figure out how to write a good short story. And also, of course, to have a, a family and, and be be a good father and husband. But um, it's only now occurring to me that I kind of miss some stuff, you know? So, like, yeah. and I, I know, and I'm a big fan of, of uh, you know, just various cooking shows and so on. So the idea that um, I know this one thing, which is writing, and I know it in incredible detail in terms of process, you know, and, and it's amazing the things, as you know, from being a writer, you, you, the things you learn, tiny little useless things about your own mind when writing, uh, it's really rich. And so for the first time, I'm like, wow, it's interesting. That must be analogous to so many other things in the world at which people are good, you know, so, so cooking, uh, you know, how, how is it that the intuition gets in there? You know, for me in writing the, the big revelation has been that there's a part of the mind that is there when you're editing, especially that's very, very precisely judgmental. It knows mm. just, just what it's like. So my theory is a really good piece of writing is a result of these t- thousands, maybe tens of thousands of micro decisions that you make at speed, changing this sentence, moving this phrase and so on. And I've, I've, 
the, the real blessing of being a writer is that I really believe in that part of the mind now. It's so powerful. You know, this intuitive, spontaneous part of the mind. It is not about conceptualizing or reducing or articulating. So I'm, I found myself really curious to talk to people in other fields mm. to see how intuition has served them, you know. Cooking is such a great cognitive. It's so relevant. My take would be that when you are a proficient or even an, an, an amateur home cook, your intuition, your like motor memory is what we call it. We're talking about a physical thing. We're talking about like actually using your muscles to do something like chop shallots. Your intuition is always firing. But to your point, you're making tens of like a thousand decisions that you are second guessing. Guessing you're you're mm-hmm. there's like microaggressions against against yourself about your your confidence. I mean, I think cooks, home cooks of all levels, have this kind of level of self doubt. I mean, even professionals, I'm sure. So I think it's. I really agree with you. There's this. This would be an yeah. interesting text. It's interesting because you know what I find is part of writing then is to say, okay, I'm gonna always. I, I always talk about this idea that you have a meter in your head with P for positive on one side, N for negative the other, as you're reading your own prose, that needle is moving. Mm-hmm. You know, So part of the job is when it's in the positive, leave it alone. When it drops into the negative, to kind of gently prod at that place to try to get the needle to come up. In other words, what don't I like about this? But the, the interesting thing to what you're saying is that that meter is not completely reliable. It, you know, it, it gives you different readings every day. So in what I do, it's in writing, it's you come back to it day after day after day after day. And the idea is that over time, your reaction stabilizes. And in the meantime, you've had literally hundreds of versions of yourself that have weighed in. So grouchy you has weighed in, fastidious you has weighed in, joyful you has weighed in. And so the idea is that by the end of it, the story is sort of like, the sum total of the best parts of you. Hmm. And it achieves a kind of wit or, in my case, humor, or even sometimes wisdom that you personally don't have. You know? so, that, so I would love to talk to chefs about that question. Like, how is it that, how is it that you're uh, the most amazing meal you've ever served? How did that come about? You know, what's, what's the combination of, of intuition and luck and um, consciousness and so on? Well, I think I think of making salad. One the one thousand salads you've made in your life. How many like intuition takes over at some point? There's a grouchy you who's made who's made a salad. There's the optimistic you who's made a salad. I, I don't know. I'm like stuck on salad. I don't know why I'm thinking about this. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's George is a cool point, and I, I feel like uh, I encourage you to pursue this this work. I would yeah. love to read it. <laughs> well, um, but you know, and it's, and it's even like we were watching a movie about rock climbing last night, and the, one of the things was. You're not thinking, you know, yeah. you're, you're just reacting. And so I, I think, you know, there's um, so many in our, in our world right now, there's so much emphasis on linear, rational, often reductive thinking. There's certainly a big emphasis on people having strong opinions quickly, you know, maybe, maybe because of the internet or, or social media. But in writing, I, f- I love the idea that you can have a series of opinions slowly uh, you can get all of yourself in there to think it through. Uh, and it makes a kind of a spaciousness that I really, mm-hmm. really like. And when I've talked to, to some friends who are really good cooks or to chefs, you always feel that there's an openness about it. You know, that process has made them more confident, maybe not more confident in their spot judgment, but maybe more confident in their cumulative judgment or something like that. In a thing at work from your recent collection, Liberation Day, you reference custom mustards. And I, I think, uh, <laughs> it's like a sign of snobbery in the character. 
Um, I have to ask you deep down, do you think it's okay to like have three types of mustard in your, in oh, your yeah. fridge? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's not, actually, that woman is self-judging. She, she's projecting that someone will think that about her. Yes, of course. So, you know, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, yeah, that's, and then, you know, the other thing in that story, there's the other side of it, that one of the characters is uh, complaining about her life and she says, you know, all these people are going out for lunch and I just get a, you know, a slice of an apple and a piece of cheese, you know. So this, in that story, I think the idea of, um, you know, what foods do you have access to? Uh, and that was for me, you know, when I was working, I worked a lot of, of jobs and uh, several of them. That, what I remember is that I couldn't afford a meal or I had to grab something from home. There was a there was a run where I was a, a doorman in Beverly Hills and I actually got into the habit of taking uh, potatoes, uncooked potatoes out of the fridge that didn't belong to me uh, to, you know, to eat them at lunch. You know, it was that it was that kind of thing. And so then when you'd see somebody. Yeah, who lived in the apartment building, come in with a beautiful salad or something. You, you, it was bitter, you know? Yeah, it, it was like a real sense of reality, a, like a, a moment of reality. You know, I have to say the Olive Garden leftovers moment in that story. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's like, that's dark. Like the the, the, <laughs> the, the, the co-worker just like dropping a, a plate of leftovers from Olive Garden on, on her co-worker's desk. Well, it's actually, and it's actually even worse because it's been wrapped up in one of those tinfoil yes. swan shapes, you know, that's the that's right. You, 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 that's just, that's a great little moment there where you're, you're painting this picture of the swan shaped. <laughs> but I remember that, you know, I worked at a, a similar place and I remember, you know, we were young, uh, had our kids and we didn't have a lot of money. So there was a real, uh, kind of tension around lunch for me, you know, that you, you, um, it, it was literally close enough to the bone for us that if, you know, to have $15 for lunch or 10 was, you know, not, you didn't. So it, it was, um, you know, when you think about about life and about class and about working, that, mm-hmm. that's a moment when, as noon grows close, uh, you know, it, it, people handle it in different ways. And it's it can be very, uh, I remember when I was in a doorman, there was a, a food truck that would come up beside behind the condo in Beverly Hills. And they had the most amazing pastrami sandwich, the best I've ever tasted. But they mm-hmm. were, you know, this was in the 80s and they were maybe $7 or something, you know. And it was a very precise amount, seven twenty nine after taxes. And so... I really remember certain days where I had seven twenty. You know, and you're like, where yeah. the hell are nine pennies? You know, gonna back before we had Square and, and Apple Pay, right? It's a different yeah, generation, yeah. right? Right. Was, yeah. Well, you're you're giving these memories of Los Angeles, and 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 when you were living in Los Angeles, are you are you hitting taco trucks? Are you are you on the East Side? Um, uh, wait, paint the picture of Los Angeles during your your time. At there. that time, uh, we were well, we were crashing with a friend in Santa Monica, which got. Tense after a while. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, Tommy's, the, the cheeseburger uh, place, was amazing. And then also somebody taking us downtown to, um, yeah, um, El Salvador and Taco so that were being sold on the street that were just off the charts. Uh, and then there was also, you know, it's you know how sometimes you get far enough away from something, you're not sure if you maybe dreamed it, but there was a place, uh, very eighties kind of place that was sort of like. If Devo had a restaurant, you know, oh, if, sign like, me up. Yeah. And all the waiters sort of dress like that. And I, I, I remember they also were kind of encouraged to be a bit robotic and the food all had kind of Jetson like names, you know, I, I have no idea where that was or if that, if that was, but yeah. Wow. I mean, it's like Michael McCarthy or Wolfgang Puck, or, I mean, who's doing this, this space age robotic. I mean, it sounds almost like a version of Los Angeles that was painted in like TV and film 
back yeah. in the eighties, right? Like right. And, LA Story, like Steve Martin. No, and it, it just is sort of like um, okay, so it was almost like if you took classic American diner, but then set it in tw- the year twenty three hundred. That's kind of what wow. they had in mind, you know. But it's, but, it's, but honestly, for that time, what I remember most is just that uh, we're like getting into town the first day and somebody taking us somewhere for way was on Charles and it was so delicious and also so kind of perfect for the place and uh kind of exotic you know but but the real thing I remember is the kind of the question of where the you know where's the next what's the next meal gonna look like and how do we how do we get it and you know the feeling of paucity really which is you know especially bitter in LA yeah did you read Jonathan Gold at all when you were there no I did not no I didn't get to read Jonathan um do you read cookbooks? I mean, I have to ask, we, we have a lot of cookbook authors on the show, and I, I want to know is, you know, between your, your academic work and your own writing, you probably don't have a lot of time, but do you read cookbooks? I really don't. I mean, it's hard to be a bummer, but I'm- No, no, it's good. I, no. Yeah, I, I have, uh, with, my life is, is uh, it, it requires an incredible amount of time at the desk. I, I wish it didn't. I wish I was a little more, and, and it's one of my kind of regrets right now is that I'm, I'm not- living a particularly full life. I'm not like a big hiker. I don't, you know, so, but, but for whatever reason, the, the, the writing projects are so interesting and they take so much time that I've kind of just said, well, that that's, that's it. I mean, George, it sounds like you're living your truth and, and it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like you're regretting it. I mean, it, it, you might want to do hiking, but you love writing so much. So why yeah, would I feel you? like I should regret it and, and <laughs> kind of getting to the point of, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hiking is overrated. Let's just like, we'll like say it right now on the show. <laughs> 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 no, nah, I'm kidding. I, I, I just think it's, thank you for sharing that and being honest about it because I feel like we, we try to project, like we want to live this ideal life, especially, you know, moving from New York to California, like you want to like be a hiker you want to you know have a definitely like three or four different kind of box delivery co-op deals happening and of course at the farmer's market but that's not how we live our lives right yeah we although we, my wife and i have been riding uh, our bikes to the brentwood farmer's market and that's kind of opening my eyes we, we get some incredible mushrooms there that and, I, and i'm the kind of guy who'd be like you know a mushroom is a mushroom and no the, these mm. mushrooms are you can put them in anything and it makes it better but i, I yeah you know that it's interesting to um Maybe a little bittersweet to get to a point where you're like, okay, this life has been about the short story, you know, and, and um, okay, so if you want to see that through to the end, you have to really uh, make some sacrifices. You know, you have to really uh, sort of admit to yourself that it gives you deep pleasure to be in the middle of a story, no matter how, you know, no matter how much it blocks out everything else. And it's a strange, I think, in, in our time where, I think the illusion is that one should have it all or that the, you know, the well-lived life is the goal. Um, kind of exciting to me to think, well, maybe the well-lived life is an incredibly obsessive one, you know, with one focus. And then through that life, everything is there, really. But it, it does run a little bit counter to what you sometimes feel you should be doing. Love Letter. Uh, Love Letter is an epistolary. It's 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 one of my favorite pieces in the in the new collection. And you really tackle how generations communicate with each other, how a grandfather communicates with a grandson as a world tilts toward authoritarianism. And I, I guess the format was interesting, like a handwritten letter. How, what are you playing with in this, uh, in, this, in this work? Well, I mean, honestly, I had uh, an experience. This was right before the, the, the last election. So, you know, I was really uh, engaged and upset and and um, so I had one extended conversation with somebody from my larger family who's quite to the right of me. 
And it got a little heated, but, you know, it's family. And then another conversation with a couple of young people I know who uh, were to the left of me, which is kind of hard to do, but they were, also got a little heated. Mm. And um, so then at the end of that, you're kind of not, you're reminded that you don't really know where you are politically, actually. It's, it's you know, it's kind of transient. But also was reminded of how deeply satisfying those kind of conversations are if they don't spin into rage, you know. <laughs> and in both of the cases, there was enough love there and, and respect that, you know, it could be sort of heated in a way that I remember fondly from Chicago. You know, you could you could fight with somebody uh, as long as you bring it back home at the end. So that was kind of on my mind. I thought, let me try to write these feelings I'm having. I'll put them in somebody else's head. But for starters, it's going to be my head. So I'm going to write to this imaginary grandson uh, about my conflicted feelings about what's happening and, and whether or not I'm involved enough in pushing against these, this autocratic tilt. Uh, so that was really the first impulse, just to try to write what I actually felt, which for me is kind of unusual. Usually I'm kind of inhabiting somebody. but um, So I, I just started doing that, writing to a grandson that I felt very fond of mm. um, and kind of confessing, basically, this here's, here's how I feel. And the one slant I put on it was that this is now some years in the future, um, you know, the, the, the forces, the anti-democratic forces have won big time. Well, oh yeah, he's like, there's like very much concern the letter will be found by, right. by, by an unknown government, right? Right. So sometimes with fiction, you're, you're really just telling your story, but you maybe put one weird thing in it. You know, that was kind of the <laughs> Kafka approach. It's, it's everything's normal, except, you know, ducks can talk. <laughs> and then the idea is by, by taking that concept very seriously, you are eventually going to refract light back on the way things actually are now. No, so, so in this one, the idea is, okay, now it's all, it's, a, it's done. It's done. We are definitely not a democracy anymore, and we're all living in the, the ruins. And this guy is kind of saying, well, let me explain to you, beloved grandson, how we got here and what my part in it was. Well, your love of it, Russian literature is, is very profound and clear in this, in this piece, and it, it seems your, your point is, is, is clear. I, I have to say, I say the epistolary that comes to mind, older author writing to a younger younger man is uh, Beverly Cleary's Dear Mr. Henshaw. Are you familiar mm. with this work? No, I'm not, but I will be. Yeah, well, th- I got to say, third shout out to Miss Cargill in third grade. Put it in my hands. I just gave it to my nephew. It's an epistolary. It's <laughs> I, I just had to bring it up. It, it got me thinking about this this work. Well, it's, it's a great form because presumably, you know, it, it's private. You know, if I write you a letter, that's between you and me. So that uh, allows for a real honesty, uh, person to person. Plus, you get the kind of, you know, uh, elevated diction that you can use in a letter that you might not use in person. So it's kind of a a nice way to sort of look behind the curtain and see what a person is really thinking. And in this case, um, one thing that interests me about the story that I didn't plan at all was that the, the grandfather actually starts to change his mind as he gets deeper into it, just subtly, you know. And so that was a fun thing to try to convey that he he's coming off a little bit like cautiously uh, urging his grandson not to get political, keep your head down. And by the end of it, he's almost talked himself out of it, uh, sort of by the, you know, by you think maybe by rereading his own letter, he's like, wait a minute, I don't know if I really believe that. I like that 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 moment. It strikes me, yeah. The that that moment of, of, of realization. Um, several people are typing. Comes to mind, uh, Calvin Kosolki. I think that's how you say his name. It's a it's an epistolary through the Slack channel. I don't know if you're <laughs> familiar with this. No, <laughs> I'm pretty much not familiar with any work. It appears. 
<laughs> no, no, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to stunt here. I, I, I just had to say this idea of the uh, epistolary and, and written like letters or texts or Slack channels. Um, to your point, I, I think it's so so powerful when uh, we uh, we don't think anyone's reading. You know, we're saying what we want to say, right, right? Right. George, I have to know cooking. Are you are you doing it at home? Are you are you ordering in what what's what's the situation like well i um we my wife and i have tried and i'm not too good as we tried to split the cooking lately so that meant that i had to learn so i i do a pretty good um like a a beet soup uh and i just got a minestrone down and so i'm trying to you know carry my weight i'm not she's a really wonderful cook so it seems sometimes like you know why should i bother except to be helpful you know so I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning a few things. But um, yeah, and I think we're, uh, we, we, we just bought a little apartment in L.A. So the temptation to order out is, is really strong since we're both writing. Um, but we, we, you know, it's, we just are real improvisers. We just improvise and whatever shows up. We, you know, for a while there, during the pandemic, we were, the, the idea was to make a soup and then basically just eat it until you couldn't anymore. You know, <laughs> you couldn't bear it anymore. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, in my household. We we make like chicken stew and it'll be like day four, and we're like, should we or shouldn't we? Should we? It's almost like a yeah, challenge, yeah, right? Yeah, it's uh, well. I mean, you know, honestly, with, when both of us are working, uh, it's really just sustenance. Like, let's you know, how how can we? Um, sometimes we joke because it feels like the idea is let's turn this day around and get the next one started as soon as possible. <laughs> you know, could we put both been working for ten hours and we're fascinated by what we're doing, and uh, so dinner is kind of like let's just you know, take the path of least, least resistance. It's just pure nourishment. Yeah, I, I, I write my, yeah, I absolutely know what that means. And do you think, do you think actually writing burns calories? Like, like oh, running? Like I running? think 100%. You know, after a good day, I'm just uh, exhausted and um, all mental, all mental activity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it, I mean, it burn. I mean, you, you need sustenance. Like you need, it's like a, you're running a marathon every single yeah, day. Yeah, especially, I think, you know, with fiction, there's, there's, um, there's the writing part. But then there's also, I don't know what you would call it, but to me, the key skill is to um, separate yourself from what you've just written so you can see it the way a first-time reader might. And that's a real, I mean, that's not something you can will yourself to do exactly. It, it, it does take a certain kind of energy. And then for me, it also sometimes means I have to disrupt that sitting at the desk and go do something else, just even something very mm-hmm. minor. Then you come back to it and just marginally more able to see what you've done apart from your sort of pre-existing attachment to it. Does leaving the desk sometimes include coffee? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> or even if I run out, then I have to go to cat and cloud and get some more. And then that's even better. Yeah. You yeah. go to cat. <laughs> oh yeah. Those guys, I, I, we got to We got to shut them out again. Cat and cloud. George Saunders. We asked all guests in the taste podcast. If there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you do not have a deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you don't, you have unlimited funds mm. to make this book happen. I'd love to know what book would you write? Well, it's probably been written, but I, what fascinates me is, okay, uh, as somebody who's written some historical fiction, I'm really interested in uh, the way that a house, for example, would have smelled in 1862 that that we can't imagine, you know, the things that are present in the house that we don't have anymore, or the, uh, you know, the, the methods of cleaning that haven't been discovered yet. And included in that, I would love to um, look at a really typical household in, say, 1862, and 
live through a week in the culinary life of that house. You know, in, in the same way that we were just talking about, what do they, what's dinner? Um, mm-hmm. How long does it take? Who did it? And especially like, how does, how does it taste different from the food that we eat now? Because, you know, when you're, when you're writing about the past like that, you, you really are trying to imagine on that level, the micro level, you know, what do the shoes feel like? Uh, you know, what, what's the uh, kind of traffic pattern in the house and so on. So I think the, you know, the, the idea that whatever our house smelled like just before dinner time wow. was probably not what we would expect. It's probably totally different. And conversely, if they could come, you know, and, and, and come into a house in which someone had just microwaved a breakfast burrito would probably freak them out. You know? <laughs> I, w- I, I was just thinking microwave popcorn. Like if, if like somebody came from like 1862 and got, came into a house and it was like a microwave popcorn in a microwave. That would I mean, be crazy. It wow. would be like, you know, I remember when we were kids in Chicago, my, my uh, grandparents lived over uh, on the South side, 50, 55th in California. And there was mm-hmm. a closet when you first came in and as kids, we were so fascinated by it because all the men at that time were wearing overcoats. And so the ritual hanging up of the overcoat and the placing of the hat on a shelf and the people would um, put these things, mothballs, you know, into the closets to discourage moths. And it had such a crazy smell, almost like a food smell, which is dangerous. And, 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 um, but that whole thing now is vanished, you know. So if you were writing a book about 1962, that was a very real thing, you know, that not only doesn't exist anymore, but how would you know, you know, and, and especially how would you know the smell of it? So that would be, that would be interesting. You know, it's very, George, it's interesting because it's like so many of these products were probably extremely toxic and killing these people at the time, you know, like cleaning supplies from 1950. Well, I know there were stories that kids would eat these models because they look great. They look like, like jawbreakers, you know? (laughs) So, oh my gosh. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us. Books Connect Us.